Scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 through 6, and Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. Good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't met any of you yet. And we are continuing our sermon series called By Faith. And each week, what we've been doing is looking at one of the Old Testament saints mentioned in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, as some call it. And what we want to do is consider their faith, look at our own faith, and then ultimately look at the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. So last week, we looked at Abel and how by faith he offered a more acceptable sacrifice, a more acceptable offering to God than his brother Cain, because Abel offered his entire life to God in faith. Today, we're going to be looking at Enoch. Now, if you don't know much about Enoch, welcome to the club. No one knows that much about Enoch This is actually the end of the sermon, guys, so let's pray. A kid, of course, but no one knows that much about Enoch. But yet he is included in Hebrews 11, despite the minimal information we have about him. So we're going to try to dive a little bit deeper into our passage, into the character of Enoch. And as we do so, we'll have three points. The first, obscurity. Second, visibility. And then third, identity. So let's begin with our first point, obscurity. Have any of you ever done a read through the entire Bible in a year plan? Or maybe a better question is, have any of you ever started a read through the Bible in a year plan? You likely got to Genesis chapter 5 pretty quickly, maybe even like the second day of that plan. And day one, you were probably like, wow, this is amazing, this is so encouraging, this creation story, the fall story, it's so dramatic. And then day two, you got to chapter five, and you were like, what? A genealogy? Are you kidding me? This is so boring. But if you actually read through Genesis 5 carefully, Enoch would stick out to you. He would have stuck out to the original readers as well, although probably for a different reason. Enoch is the seventh person in the genealogy, and that number would have naturally made the original readers curious. They would have wondered, who's number seven in this genealogy? And it would have been Enoch. So he would have stuck out to them, but he would also likely stick out to us, just as normal, modern readers, uh, because Enoch breaks the formula of all the rest of the people mentioned in the genealogy. For each person before him in the genealogy, there's a pretty standard formula. 
when so-and-so had lived for this many years, he fathered this son, so-and-so lived and fathered uh, uh, so-and-so lived and fathered his son for this many years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of so-and-so were this many years, and then he died. For all six of the people before Enoch, that's how the formula works. But when we get to Enoch, it's a little bit different. Uh, in verse 21 of our passage, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. So far, it's the same. Verse 22 mixes it up slightly. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Something a little bit different in there. It doesn't just say he lived a certain number of years. It says that he walked with God for a certain number of years. And then in verses 23 and 24, it gets kind of strange. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So we're expecting to hear that after 365 years, he died. But instead we hear, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so there are clearly two things about Enoch that make him stand out in this genealogy. The first is that he walked with God, and the second is that he never died. But that's all we know. He walked with God, so God took him. And that's it. He's sort of an obscure figure. We don't know that much about Enoch. Now, I'm going to look at each of the two things that we do know in more detail, but I really want to emphasize this. Enoch, the second person listed in Hebrews 11, is totally obscure. We know almost nothing about him, and even the things that we do know about him are abstract. We don't know the specifics. We don't know what it meant specifically that Enoch walked with God, and we don't know in what manner God took him. He lived and was taken in obscurity. He never died because he walked with God. So let's take a, a closer look at each of these elements. And so, first, Enoch never died. God just took him. He never saw death. I love how simply the passage in Genesis states this. He was not. Was not what? Just was not. One day he was, the next day he was not. God took him. And so what's the significance of Enoch not seeing death? Well, I assume it's obvious to you that it's, it's a blessing, right? Like, no matter how you die, even if you die in the quote-unquote best possible way, peacefully in your sleep, you know, the weeks and months and years leading up to that were likely a slow burn of physical and mental disintegration. Enoch got to skip all that. He was just taken. It's important to remember that death is a result of sin. It's not just a part of life. Death is literally a contradiction to life. And, you know, obviously in a fallen world, we're used to the fact that everyone will eventually die. But it's always important to remember that that's bad. That's not the way things were supposed to be. God didn't create the world with death. It's like a foreign invader that came later, and it makes everything irrational and not make sense. You know, death is an aberration in our world. So again, Enoch getting to skip the aberration of death is a blessing, and it's also a gracious sign of God's power over death. You know, I'm not exactly sure what Enoch or the first readers of Genesis thought about death or what they thought about life after death, but 
Enoch skipping death makes it clear that there's something more. There's something else. There's possibly something after death. You know, God revealed more and more about this in his word to us. You know, as God revealed more and more in his word about life after death, we get a clearer and clearer picture. But imagine that you were Adam or Eve or Seth or whoever else in this genealogy. You know, in very recent history, the reality went from being one where people lived together in harmony with God forever to one where people died, their lives ended. And I'm not sure that they had reason yet to believe that there was something more than that until Enoch. Enoch's departure, his skipping of death, is a sign that death will not have the final word in their lives. God has power over it. And even though he doesn't exercise it all the time, Enoch proves that he can when he wants to, and it hints at the possibility that he will exercise power more fully over death eventually, later, in the future. And so Enoch did not see death. He didn't die. But why? Why Enoch? Why did Enoch get to be one of the two people, the other being Elijah, why did he get to be one of the two people who did not die, but were simply taken up to heaven by God? What did he do to deserve this blessing and honor? I mean, obviously, in a sense, he did nothing to truly deserve it. It's ultimately God's graciousness toward him. But both Genesis and Hebrews indicate that God did have some reason for choosing to exercise his grace in this way. He wasn't obligated to, but it also wasn't random. God took Enoch for a reason. God took Enoch because Enoch walked with him. He walked with God. That's the second thing emphasized in Genesis. He repeats it twice about Enoch. He walked with God. That's actually the only thing that Genesis tells us really about Enoch's life, besides just, you know, who his son was who his father was. The only glimpse we get into his life is that he walked with God. Now, Hebrews picks that up a little bit and expands upon it. Our passage in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6, says this. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. You see the connections being made there between the Hebrews passage and the Genesis passage? Walking with God pleases God. It's impossible to please God without faith. And so walking with God is something you do by faith. So so Hebrews is telling us. So a couple of things to take away here. First, let's talk about this concept of walking with God. What does that mean? Like, did Enoch just literally go out on long walks with God? Obviously, walking with God is a metaphor, but imagining yourself going on a walk with God is actually a pretty good metaphor for what this means. It's a deep and abiding relationship with God. It's consistent. It's progressive. There's communication. There's regularity. There's relationship. There's trust and love and dependence. It's like the opposite of what happens in Genesis 3. You remember what happens in Genesis 3? You know, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And then Genesis 3.8 says that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
But did Adam and Eve join God for that walk? No. It continues, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from God when they heard him walking among them. So where are you at with walking with God? Do you hear the sound of God walking and like Adam and Eve, hide yourself from him? Do you bury your head in your work or school or video games or entertainment? Or do you hear the sound of God walking and like Enoch, walk with him? Now, as you go about your week, do you, do you think about God? Do you talk to God? Do you, do you pray? Do you read his word? In a tense or confusing situation, do you pause and ask, God, what should I do here? Are you aware that God is present with you all the time? Are you aware that God is present even when you're not awake, so you are actually free to go to sleep because he'll be there? caring for you? Do you confess your sin to God? Do you thank him for his forgiveness? Do you bask in the joy of his salvation? Do you worship? Do you walk with God? You know, the Christian faith is not just assenting to true doctrines. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. It's like a lifelong walk with God. You know, sometimes you're just admiring the creation with God. Sometimes you're joking around with God. Sometimes you're rejoicing for blessing in your life. Sometimes you're mourning for hardship in your life. But it's a lifelong walk with God. Whatever is going on, whatever comes up, a walk with God. If you do walk with God, Hebrews 11 says that it pleases him. And that's the second takeaway. Walking with God pleases God. Did you know that it's actually possible to please God? That may sound weird to hear. You know, sometimes we get so bogged down thinking about what's called soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, you know, saved by grace through faith, justification by faith alone. Sometimes we get so bogged down with that, which isn't all bad. It's a beautiful and true and freeing doctrine. But if we get so laser-focused on it alone, we may miss the full breadth of Christian doctrines, like sanctification, or Christian ethics, or Christian piety. You know, Hebrews says that Enoch pleased God. That doesn't mean that Enoch served his salvation, but in some non-salvific way, things that Enoch did pleased God. Because Enoch walked with him. Do you want to please God? then walk with him. And do you know why walking with God pleases him? It's the same reason that walking with anyone would please anyone else. He wants to be with you. He likes you. He loves you. He created you. He made you. And so it pleases God when we walk with him. And so you can bring the messy complexity of your life to him. You can trust him and his Word. You can live by faith. You know, when you read some instruction in the Word that you're not quite sure you're on board with, talk to God about it. Whatever it is, walk by faith in it. Try to work it out with Him. Try to maybe even live it out before you're convinced of it yet. 
walk with God. It pleases him when you walk with him. You know, say, God, I'm not exactly sure why you asked this of me. I'm not exactly sure I'm in this situation, but I trust you. So I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to give it a shot. Whatever happens in life, it's, it's possible to please God by walking with him. Now, what were the things that Enoch actually did by faith? What were the things that were the results of Enoch walking with God? You know, did he save a bunch of people's lives? Was he a warrior? Was he a prophet? Did he stand up to oppressive rulers? Did he risk losing his job to remain faithful to God? Did he lead a massive revival service where tons and tons of people got saved? Did he write a popular book? Did he have a massive social media following? Did he go overseas as a missionary? Did the president invite him to be his advisor? What was the big deal about Enoch's walk with God? We have no idea. No one knows what Enoch actually did by faith. No one knows what was the fruit of his walking with God. As a contrast, the only other person to not see death in Scripture was the prophet Elijah. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And you can read all about his ministry in First and Second Kings. We know a ton about what he did. We know all the occasions he walked with God. We know the challenges he faced. We know the fruit of Elijah's faith. It makes sense that God took him and didn't let him see death. But Elijah's not in the Hall of Faith. Elijah doesn't get mentioned in Hebrews 11. But Enoch does. And so what is up with that? What is so significant about Enoch that got him into the Hall of Faith, but not the only other person who got to skip death? We don't. No. And doesn't that just drive you crazy? Don't you want to know? Don't you want to know what was so special about Enoch? What did he do? But maybe that's the point. Maybe the obscurity is the point. By faith, Enoch was taken without anyone else knowing what he did. By faith, Enoch lived and was taken in obscurity. By faith, Enoch trusted that God saw how he lived, and that was enough. Maybe the obscurity was the point. Just simple, day-by-day faith until the end. Nothing flashy, nothing fancy, just faith. This is good for us to hear in the 21st century, living in America. Enoch's obscurity is good for us to hear because in a lot of ways, it's the opposite of how we want to live. We're scared of obscurity. You know, we want people to see us and what we do. We, we're drawn to celebrities and famous people and larger-than-life Christian personalities. But Enoch is a, a challenge to us. He's in the hall of faith because he had the faith to live without anyone knowing what his faith's fruit was. He just trusted that God saw it, and that was enough. So again, that's the opposite of us. We are afraid of obscurity. What we want instead is visibility. And that takes us to our second point, visibility. In uh, 2019, Harris Insights and Analytics took a poll of 1,000 kids in the United States ages 8 to 12 and asked them 
what do you want to be when you grow up? They could pick three things. You might already see where this is heading. What do you think the number one answer was for 8 to 12-year-olds in the United States? A YouTuber, which is not actually a vocation. Like, a good YouTube channel is always about something else, right? Good YouTubers are always something else that they use the medium of YouTube to share with others. And, uh, you know, I like YouTube just fine. The church used it uh, during the pandemic. I subscribe to several channels. Uh, but they're always about something else. No one is on YouTube for YouTubing's sake. You know, I follow channels about cycling, obviously, tech, lockpicking, interestingly. You should check out lockpicking videos. Uh, ask Liana and Eddie, right? Paid off after 30 minutes sitting in front of a lock at their house. Uh, but you always go to YouTube to watch about people's expertise in some other field. But our children, it seems, when they grow up, don't aspire to do any of the things that we would share on YouTube. They just want to be on YouTube for its own sake. They want to be famous. They want to be seen. They want visibility. And of course, it's not just our children. It's adults, too. You know, maybe we've given up on our aspirations of being famous by now. Uh, although, you know, I think if I really tried hard, I might still be able to be a professional athlete. It's close, but I'm at that age where I haven't quite given up hope yet. But we, even as adults, still want to be seen. We want to be visible. We want to matter. You know, we don't want Enoch's life of obscurity. We want to be significant. You know, we no longer ask if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it doesn't make a sound. We ask... If it's not on social media, did it really happen? Like, maybe you can relate to this. I can remember going to a concert. It was general admission, so you can go wherever you want in the, in the venue. And uh, I remember going to that concert and being more concerned with where the best place to take a picture would be than the best place to hear or see the concert. Like, it was almost like I didn't actually go to see a concert, what I actually went to do was take a picture of a concert so that I could post it on Instagram so that 22 people could like it, scrolling mindlessly through their feeds. Do you ever feel like that's what you're doing? Like you're not so much living your life, you're performing it. You're documenting it so that you can prove to others that you really did live it. But ironically, our obsession with documenting it prevents us from fully living our lives. Why do we do stuff like that? What's, what's wrong with us? I mean, I hope that I was just explaining what we do with social media. You recognize that something's wrong, maybe even a little bit insane about how we engage social media. How could the picture of a thing be more important than the thing itself? You know, why do we feel compelled to almost prove to other people that we actually did the things we did and that we actually had a good time? Why do we have to prove that to people? And look, I'm not saying you should never use social media. I'm on some social medias. Uh, I'm also not saying that there's no proper use of social media. I think that there can be proper uses for social media. And I'm also not saying that being seen or being visible are bad in and of themselves, or that you're weak for needing to be seen. We actually do need to be seen to some degree by someone, by some people. Being invisible is not what I'm actually advocating for. God made you visible. But our engagement in social media, or whatever the equivalents are you know, for you, your text message thread, your internet forums, whatever, our need to be visible, our need to be seen is blown out of proportion 
It needs to be reined back in a little bit. We need to analyze why we do what we do to be seen. So I have a proposal. Next time you're doing something that you would normally document, you know, photograph, take a video, whatever, next time you're doing something that you would normally document, don't. I'm not saying never again, just next time, maybe a few other times. Uh, don't post it. Don't document it and just see how it feels. Can you enjoy the thing if you don't post it? Does the thing feel worth doing anymore if you're not going to post about it? You know, take inventory of your emotions and thoughts next time you actively decide not to post something. Just give it a shot. I think we can learn a lot about why we do it in the first place. I have a hunch that maybe we think that we don't matter or we aren't significant if we're not visible. If we don't let others see the things we do on social media, then it's like we didn't do them. Or maybe it's like we almost don't even really exist if people don't see us. There's a fairy tale. I've I've shared this before, so I'll share it more quickly this time. But there's a fairy tale. And in it, there was a prince who was cursed with a terrible fate. The court magician had put a spell on him so that the prince could only exist if he remained in the sight of of others. If he were ever in no one's sight, he would find himself evaporating out of existence. And so the king, his father, hired all these servants to watch the young prince at all times. So he would never be out of someone's sight. Someone would always have to have their eyes on him. And it was strange for him to never be left alone. The prince would find that his features would change depending on who was in the room. You know, when one servant entered, his voice would deepen. When another servant entered, his hair would start to lighten up a little bit. And uh, the strangest and slightest things would shift, just depending on who was in the room. And when the servants discussed the prince, they would always wonder if they were talking about the same boy. And as time went on, the prince became quite depressed. As he longed to go off to far countries and the beautiful landscapes that he could see out of his window. But he never left the castle because he was afraid that if he did, he would depart the sight of others and completely disappear. We are like that boy. We live with a curse where we feel like if people don't constantly see us, then we will disappear. Who are we if people don't see us? Not only do we wonder uh, if things really happened if they're not on social media, we wonder if we even have an existence or significance or meaning if we're not on social media. If other people don't see us, Do we even exist? Are we even real? And so again, Enoch is a challenge for us because no one seems to have seen him. No one knows what Enoch was up to. He didn't post about it on Twitter. There's no YouTube video. He wasn't in the local papers. There doesn't even seem to have been an oral tradition passed down through his descendants. No one knows. What Enoch did was not visible to anyone. Did he even exist? Did he even matter? Was Enoch even significant? Of course he was, because God saw him. God knew him better than anyone who happened to really see him could know him, because God walked with him. God saw him. God knew him, which is infinitely more important. God says in 1 Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looked on Enoch's heart and was pleased. Enoch was seen. Enoch 
did matter. Enoch was significant to God. And if Enoch is significant, if Enoch matters, if Enoch is seen by God, then so are you. You know, maybe you feel sometimes like no one really does see you. God sees you. God sees what people don't see. A tree falling in the woods makes sound because someone is there. God's there. Even if something isn't on social media, it really did happen because God knows it happened. Listen to Psalm 139. God's saying God's everywhere. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. There is nowhere that you can go where God will not also be with you. There's nowhere you can go where God cannot see. There's nothing that will happen in your life that God will not know about. God sees everything, and God sees you. And once you grasp that, once you really believe that, internalize, live every day aware that God sees you right then, then you can stop obsessing over other people seeing you. If they see you, fine. If they don't see you, also fine. Because God sees you no matter what. You're real. You exist. You matter. You're significant because God sees you and God says so. He can give you what others can't give you. He can give you what you can't even give yourself. You know, God can give you what you're trying to get by being more visible. God can give you significance. God can give you an identity. And that takes us to our final point, identity. In Genesis chapter 11, there is a story called the Tower of Babel. And essentially what happens is this city of Babel, the people all unite They've been growing and growing and growing. They unite together, these, you know, many number of people, and they decide what they're going to do in unity is build a really tall tower, the Tower of Babel. And the reason they decide to build this tower is so that they can make a name for themselves. So the passage actually says, let us build this tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. Everyone will see this tall tower and the people in the city will be famous because of their tower. They will have made a name for themselves. Of course, making a name for yourself is just another way of saying making an identity for yourself. Can you relate to wanting to make a name for yourself? You know, among your friends or at school, at work, in your family, online, at church even? Do you ever find yourself trying to make a name for yourself? Or have you ever moved to a new job or a new company, a new city, a new neighborhood, and felt the sense of having a, a clean slate, a chance to make a new name for yourself? You know, the pe people of Babel and, and us, by trying to make a name for ourselves in whatever realm it is, what we're doing is trying to determine our own identity. We're trying to say, this is who I am. This is my identity, and then broadcast it to the rest of the world. But there are all sorts of issues with approaching identity this way. You know, first, at the most basic level, it's flat-out prideful. 
Because the normal ordering of things is that inferiors are named by their superiors. Children are named by their parents. The animals were named by Adam. And so to name yourself is pretty prideful. I mean, think of the types of people who name themselves. You know, recording artists, pop stars, performers, not exactly known for their humility. So, Stephanie Germanata. Do you know her? Lady Gaga. Sean Carter. You know him? Jay-Z. Reginald Kenneth Dwight. Do you know him? Elton Hercules John, which I did not know, but when he renamed himself, he gave himself the middle name Hercules, like the Roman God. So making a name for yourselves is just another way we try to put ourselves in the place of God. But second, you actually can't give yourself an identity. Just, you know, so we're on the same page. Identity basically boils down to two components. And the two parts are your sense of self and your sense of worth. So that's identity. Sense of self, sense of worth. And so your sense of self is, you know, what you do, what you're like, what characterizes you. And your sense of worth is basically a judgment on the significance or value of your sense of self. And, you know, not to be a dead horse, but this is what makes social media so dangerous. It's perfectly designed to trick you into thinking you have an identity through it. And you can see that, right? Like, if identity is those two things, your sense of self and your sense of worth, social media is where you post your sense of self, you know, through photos, articles that you care about, your commentary, your jokes, whatever. You post your sense of self, that people respond with likes and loves and ha-has, and that becomes your sense of worth. I'm worth eight likes, two hearts, and one ha-ha. But, of course, the problem is that we don't actually post our true self, sense of self on social media. We post a curated version of ourself just the parts we want to share. And so the judgment of worth that we get back isn't based on our true self. But even if it were, it comes from a random mob of people who are not known for just judgments. And so again, your identity, your sense of self and your sense of worth. And so when I say you can't give yourself an identity, I don't mean that you can't change what you're like. Obviously, you can. But when I say you can't give yourself an identity, I mean you can't bestow a verdict of significance or value or worth upon yourself. You can't get a sense of identity through self-recognition. It has to come from outside of you. But you see, we live in an age where everyone is trying to make a name for themselves. It's just the norm. Everyone's doing it. You're doing it. You probably don't even realize it. And, you know, a diagnostic that you can do to see how you're trying to give yourself an identity is to ask yourself a simple question, who am I? Who is Kevin Timmons? Who is, fill in the blank with your name, who am I that's the same in every single situation I ever find myself in? Because, you know, if you say your job title is who you are, I'm a pastor. Well, you're not your job all the time. You're not your job title when you're at home with your spouse or kids. You're not your job title when you're hanging out with your friends. Or if you say, who am I? I'm I'm a father. What happens if, God forbid, you're not a father anymore? Or if you say, "I'm, I'm a husband. What happens if you're not anymore? What about people who aren't in those roles? What if your role changes? So do you see how identity has to go deep? 
It has to be deep enough to be true no matter the context, no matter the changing circumstances of life. But, you know, whatever maybe came to mind for you first when I asked the question, who are you, that might be giving you some insight in how you're trying to make a name for yourself. Again, everybody is trying to make a name for themselves in our modern society. For example, people refer to their way of interacting with others or in social media. They'll refer to it as their brand. You know, no joke, my wife was talking with one of her co-workers, and he was shopping for some new clothes. And he told her he was shopping for new clothes because he was working on his brand. Which at first sounds ridiculous. What do you mean your brand? What are you trying to sell? trying to sell himself. And so as silly as it sounds to say you're working on your brand, he's actually just putting to words very accurately what he and many others are trying to do. We're trying to build a brand. We're trying to sell ourselves to others. We're trying to make an identity for ourselves. We're trying to make a name for ourselves. Our culture is saturated in the belief that we find identity purely from what flows out from within us. You know, that's why it's common to hear people say, you do you, because the only person whose approval that matters is your own, right? Well, not really. Nobody can truly say, I don't care if literally every person in the world thinks I'm a monster. The only approval I need is my own. You know what we call people who actually think that? Sociopaths. Because you see, we need someone from the outside to say that we have Worth. We need to be esteemed by someone we esteemed. We need to be respected by someone we respect. We need to be loved by someone we loved. And so even the people who think that the only approval they need is their own, you'll notice they don't actually live that way. They socialize themselves into communities of people whose approval they crave and where they're likely to receive it. Because we all need that approval. We all need the acceptance. We all need a determination of our self-worth to give us an identity. Pastor Tim Keller in New York City tells a story about a man that he counseled whose parents would always tell him, we just want you to do what you truly want to do. Whatever that is will be all right with us, which sounds loving. It's definitely the spirit of the age. It's pretty open-minded. But the man told his pastor, uh, the man told his pastor that he grew up feeling aimless and ultimately like his parents didn't truly love him. He desperately wanted his parents to say, we would be pleased if you did this. We would be proud if this were the type of man you grew into. But he didn't have that. And instead, he spent his entire life paralyzed by fear. He doubted that his parents truly would be equally happy with any of his life choices. But he could never get them to reveal what kind of life they would admire. So the man went on to say, no one can tell themselves I'm okay. I need someone else to tell me. I need someone to tell me that's the right thing to do. I'm proud of you. You see, it's tempting to think that God's law, biblical morality, Christian ethics, it's tempting to think that they're just a burden, just something that weighs us down and constricts us and our freedoms. But imagine if God had not told us what he wanted What if he hadn't given us a vision for the perfect world and life and ultimately kingdom? What if he said nothing about what he made humanity and creation for, and instead we were just forced to live an aimless existence, never having a clue what God wanted or if we were pleasing him? 
That wouldn't be loving at all. We would live like the man whose parents wouldn't tell him what would make them proud. We would be paralyzed by fear. We would be insecure. We would have no sense of identity, no sense of self, no sense of worth. But God hasn't left us aimless and unloved without an identity. For one, he's given us his law from earlier, Micah 6, 8. He's told you, O man, what is good. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. That would please God if by faith we did those things. He didn't just give us his law, of course. He gave us salvation. He told us the way of salvation. And this is where identity comes in. The way of salvation is repentance of sin and faith in the work of Christ, which grants us adoption into the family of God. And you know what adoption means, right? A new identity. Who are you? You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And what are you worth? Nothing less than the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. That's your sense of self. That's your sense of worth. You're a son and daughter of God. You're worth the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, we can receive the sense of self and the sense of worth that we desperately crave. And it makes all the difference in the world. You know, after Jesus was baptized in uh, Matthew 3, there was a voice that rang down from heaven. And it was God the Father. Do you know what he says? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God says that of Jesus. This is my son. I love him. I am well pleased with him. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, surely Jesus was not insecure. Like, he was God. So did he really need that reassurance? You know, I'm not sure. I don't necessarily think he needed it. But I do know someone else who is insecure and needs reassurance. Me. Probably you, too. We're insecure. We need reassurance from time to time. And do you know what God has done? He's united us with Christ. If you are in Christ, if you believe, if you rest on Christ alone for salvation by faith, you're united with him. Which means that on the day when Jesus was baptized and his father said in front of everyone, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, he was also saying those words about you. This is my son. I love him. I'm well pleased with him. This is my daughter. I love her. I'm well pleased with her. And if that's true, then who cares whether in this world you're visible or invisible? God sees you. God loves you. God is pleased with you. Who cares whether in this world you're famous or obscure? God's captivated with you. You believe that? God is captivated with you. He watches you all day long. He loves you. He wants to go on a walk with you. Do you believe that? And walk with him. By faith, walk with him. That's what pleases him, just being with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess, Lord, that a lot of our week goes by without giving you a second thought. 
Lord, we often look to be seen by others, to get the approval of man, to find our identity and sense of worth from this world. When we can have all those things in you, Father, we are so thankful that you've united us to your Son, that you've declared who we are, your sons and daughters, that you've declared what we're worth, the blood of Christ. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, that would become more and more true in our lives. It would be what operates us in every moment of the day. We thank you so much, Lord, for your grace in our lives, that you see us, that you want to walk with us. Lord, help us to walk more and more with you by faith. Amen.